The day of the Lord. What is it and when is it? Some encouraging answers from the scripture right around the corner on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. Zion, now filled with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the cripple stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love and harmony. There's a real darkness in the world, and that's undeniable. Can God do anything about it? Will He do anything about it? Yes. Two things in particular, and we'll begin to consider them both today on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. Those two things are found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The first is the ushering in of the day of the Lord, and the second has to do with what he's currently doing through his church. Not only is it very encouraging, but it also helps to answer our purpose. Pastor Ed gets us started by reading and introducing our scripture. We're working our way through the scripture verse by verse. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning. The first 11 verses, Paul the Apostle writes, but concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You were all sons, or literally children. You were all children of the light and children of the day. We are not children of the night, nor children of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope, the expectation of salvation. For God did not destine us, did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we ask that you speak to us now from this section of Scripture that was written for them, but so applies to our time. Help us to understand, we ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people agreed by saying, Amen. Amen. Children of the light, children of the day. Hmm. Uh, someone sent me a story about light. They must have been reading ahead. It said, a Mrs. O'Donovan was walking down O'Connell Street in Dublin, Ireland. Coming in the opposite direction was Father O'Rafferty. Hello, said the priest, and how is Mrs. O'Donovan? Didn't I marry you two years ago? She replied, yes, you did. The priest said, are there any little ones yet? No, not yet, she said. 
Well, now, he said, I'm going to Rome, and I'll light a candle for you. She said, thank you very much, and parted. A few years later, he ran into Mrs. O'Donovan's husband. Well, now, Mr. O'Donovan, how are you? Well, I'm very well. And tell me, have the O'Donovans had any wee ones yet? And he said, oh, yes, three sets of twins and four singles, ten in all. Wow, isn't that wonderful, said the priest. And how is your lovely wife? He said, she's on her way to Rome to blow out that candle. <laughs> light, we're talking about light. This is a little long, but it's a, a great illustration. Uh, some of you know the name Robert Fulgham. He author wrote the book, Everything I Needed to Learn, I Learned in Kindergarten. He was writing about a wise man, a professor, uh, Alexander Papaderos, who was his Greek instructor. Last session, last morning, he stopped and the professor said, are there any questions? The room got quiet because uh, they had generated so many questions they didn't know when to start. And he said, no questions? And then his eyes swept the room and saw Fulgham. And he said, uh, Dr. Papaderos, what is the meaning of life? The big one, right? Uh, laughter followed and people stirred to go, but Papaderos held up his hand and stilled the room and looked at me for a long time, asking with his eyes if I was serious. And seeing with my eyes that I was, he said, I'll answer your question. And he took out his wallet from his hip pocket, reached into the leather, Bill Foden brought out a very small round mirror about the size of a quarter. He said, when I was a small child during the war, Second World War, we were very poor and lived in a remote village. One day, on the road, I found the broken pieces of a mirror. A German motorcycle had been wrecked in that place. I tried to find all the pieces and put them together, but it was not possible. So I kept only the largest piece, this one, and by scratching it on a stone, I made it round. I began to play with it as a toy and became fascinated by the fact that I could reflect sunlight into dark places where the sun would never shine in deep holes and crevices and dark closets. And it became a game for me to get light into the most inaccessible places I could find. I kept the little mirror, and as I went about my growing up, I would take it out in idle moments and continue the challenge of the game. As I became a man, though, I grew to understand that this was not just a child's game, but a metaphor for what I might do with my life. I came to understand that I am not the light, nor the source of light, but light, truth, understanding, and knowledge is there from God. And it will only shine in many dark places if I reflect it. I am a fragment of a mirror whose whole design and shape I do not know. Nevertheless, with what I have, I can reflect light into the dark places of this world, into the places that are black in the hearts of men, and change some things in some people. Perhaps others may see and do likewise. This is what I am about. This is the meaning of light. And then he took his small mirror and holding it carefully, caught the bright rays of daylight streaming through the window and reflected them onto my face and onto my hands folded on the desk. He said, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And as his followers, we are to be like that little mirror, reflecting the light of Christ into dark corners of the world. That is 
the meaning of the believer's life. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your heavenly Father. Matthew 5.16. Perfect illustration of what we're looking at this morning. Paul the Apostle said, we who have surrendered our lives to God, accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. We are children of the light. We are children of the day. He said this idea more than once. You can find it in his letter to the Ephesians and again in his letter to the Philippians, said slightly differently. Ephesians 5.80 said, we were once in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. To the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 15, he wrote, that you may become blameless and harmless, not sinless, but blameless by confessing your sins, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Shine as lights mean our spiritual character. You do have a purpose in life. You do have significance. That is your calling as a believer. That is God's calling on my life, to shine light into dark places. Sometimes we're the only point of light in a certain situation. But God would use us there to show others his love. We are not the light, but we do reflect God's light, his weight, his glory, who he is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used some graphic language in Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world like a city on a mountain, glowing in the night for all to see. You stand out in this world very much so. The purpose of every believer is to be in the midst of dark places and reflect God's light. The more we serve him, the more we become like him. Again, we do not generate the light. It is not for us to just try harder and have more light. No, the longer we walk with him, the more the Holy Spirit takes control of our hearts and minds as we surrender to him. Those who receive his abounding grace and gift of righteousness shall reign through the one Christ Jesus. Paul's words, Romans 5, 17. Those who receive the abounding, overflowing grace of God, there's more than you can contain. It's gushing all over you right now. If you'll receive his abounding grace and his gift of righteousness, I thought I had to be righteous. How are you doing with that? <laughs> but he'll give you his righteousness. It's a gift to you. A gift of grace and a gift of righteousness, and when you receive that, you'll reign through the one, Christ Jesus. Pretty amazing statements. We are to shine with this reflection of light. We are children of God. He calls us into his family. He adopts us into his family. And then he gives us a supernatural reflection of who he is to others. And often we're not even aware of it. We go, do something, leave and it affects people that were there without us even trying. So he is the light, and his light transforms us to become more like him. 
You're listening to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. He's describing our call to reflect the light of the Lord to others. Pastor Ed will expand on this as we get further into this chapter. But first, with a bit more introduction to this important scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, here's Pastor Ed. The second thing that this section of 11 verses describes is something called the Day of the Lord. Jesus returned to planet Earth to rule and reign here for a thousand years, sometimes called the millennial reign of Christ. George Harris says that 62% of Americans believe that Jesus will return physically to planet Earth. So two-thirds of us, almost, in this country uh, believe that. Paul the Apostle closes his letter to the Thessalonians by referring to this again. He's already referred to it in every chapter, all five chapters. He speaks of this thing. He obviously thought it important, or he wouldn't have brought it up five times. He obviously had spoken it to them when he was there because he says, you already know this. But he's reminding them, and as his reminder to us, that we're even closer than they were then. Every generation from this generation all the way to ours has been anticipating his return. And that's what Paul is reminding them of in you and I. He breaks it up into three parts, times and seasons, the first three verses, one, two, and three. That we are children of the light, children of the day, verse four through eight, and that you are destined by God for salvation. That's what verse nine through 11 says. So let's jump in. I think you'll find it a very encouraging set of scriptures. It is a controversial set of scriptures. A smart pastor would just avoid this section because uh, a lot of people struggle with it in different denominations, and we're a homogenous group of all different kinds of denominations here. I'm going to teach it the way that I understand it after 45 years of studying it. It's Bible prophecy. There's room for disagreement. You'll still go to heaven if you don't agree with me. You'll just have to put up with me in eternity saying, see, I told you so, I told you so. All right. So my understanding of this day of the Lord is embedded in these 11 verses, and thus a lot of pastors just choose to avoid these verses. Let's jump in and see what God would say to us. But concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Times and seasons appear two other times in Scripture, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. It's in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, and it's also, again, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. It refers primarily to God's plan for Israel. Times and seasons are looking at God's timepiece, Israel. Israel, the nation, is how you can tell where we are in prophecy. God has a definite plan for the world, a very specific plan for Israel. It's recorded in Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. If you have not read it, you should, because you are living in the time that those scriptures are being fulfilled. You can go check it out in the newspaper. Go read it. You'll see that Israel has come back together. Even now, today, Jews are arriving from all over the world, Brazil and China and obscure places, Mongolia and Australia, coming to live in Israel. As God said that they would through a prophet named Ezekiel 2,600 years ago, and now it's happening. So all of this timing will 
accumulate in a difficult time called the day of the Lord. And that's uh, embedded here too. Paul is changing subjects. If you went through the last chapter with this, chapter 4, he is talking about what's commonly called the rapture of the church, that we will be caught up, those who are alive when Jesus comes. He said it was an event that would affect every person's body in the grave, their soul and spirit come back with Jesus, and everyone who's alive will be caught up. Spectacular concept, mind-blowing concept. Paul says it's going to happen. And now he's changing subjects to a second event that is at least seven years later. He said, there's no need that I should write you about this because I had already taught you, he's saying. He didn't need to inform them for two reasons. Number one, they already knew about it. Number two, everyone's going to be surprised when it happens. There's no way to know the exact time of this event. Now, that's very frustrating to a lot of people. It's led a lot of people making guesses, all right? We'll not do that. No point in trying to do it, Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no man, no human being knows. No, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father also. The Son and the Holy Spirit have left it up for the Father to trigger that timing. Jesus' disciples, like us, were not happy with that. They asked him again in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Well, when is the time? And he said to them, quote, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put under his own power. So twice he says it. Paul's echoing the same thing here. Now, every once in a while, somebody came to me just a couple of weeks ago and said, well, I may not be able to know the time, but I can get close. I can guess the day or the week. Trying to guess the day or the week is missing the master's point entirely. His point is you can't get this one. Okay? All right. Verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord... So comes as a thief in the night. Paul is saying, I've already taught you about this day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, that phrase appears 19 times in the Old Testament and five in the New. Obviously, it's an important concept. It's a time when God will punish unbelievers living in open sin on planet Earth. Why? Just like to see people struggle? No, no, no. He's trying to turn them. God would that none would perish and that all would turn to repentance. But the day of the Lord is going to be really difficult to go through. Isaiah 13, 6, wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrow will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. Sounds familiar. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Oh, this does not sound fun. It is not. There is a way to avoid it. That's what Paul is writing about. Second Peter 3.10 describes the same day of the Lord this way. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's starting to sound familiar. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. That's very hot. Both the earth and the works that are in it will all be burned up. Jeremiah called this the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. 
There's a lot of other scriptures that are linked to it, like Revelation 16, 14, the battle of that great day of God Almighty, and on and on. Again, it's the day that we won't know. It's future, and when you surrender to Jesus, you will not be here for it. Now, some of you have grown up in a church that taught otherwise. They're saying, oh, pastor, you're just an escapist. Yes, write me down as an escapist. I'm perfectly comfortable with that. I do not want to be here for this. I've studied it many times. It's something to be avoided if there's a way to. There is a way, and he's going to tell us. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. They shall not escape. The coming of the Lord will be unexpected at the very time that the world is saying everything's fine. They're feeling secure. The destruction that Paul is speaking of here, the day of the Lord, or the coming of Jesus, as he said in verse 2, is something that is separate from what we studied in chapter 4. It's when everything seems at peace, very much like the prophets of old, Jeremiah. He predicted that Nebuchadnezzar would come and destroy Jerusalem, and false prophets stood up and said, oh, no, no, it's all peace and safety. Look, we're all secure. That's the same sort of thing that's going to happen. Paul said it will happen as Jesus said it would happen, like labor pains. Matthew 24, 8, Jesus said that very thing. Waves of pain coming closer and closer, you cannot predict when a woman will deliver. Unless you have C-section, you just don't know. And I know, I've sat around chewing my fingernails waiting for my two daughters to come. It was really hard on me. It was difficult. (laughs) Feel my pain, ladies. Feel it. (laughs) He says something kind of terrifying. They will not escape. There will be no escape. If you are alive on planet Earth, there will be no escaping this difficult time. And that's the key. If you are here and alive on planet Earth. That's not to say that there won't be people that are saved. In fact, if you read Revelation 6, when we get, all of this will make more, this is, this is the first time you've heard this. You're going to leave here going, what? <laughs> uh, but as we work our way through the rest of the New Testament, but particularly the book of Revelation, it becomes crystal clear what this is saying. Here it's compressed into 11 verses. There it's expanded into 19 chapters. So it's a lot easier to understand in the book of Revelation. But again, it's just natural the way it reads that there's two separate events. Now, some try and combine this into one event. Jesus comes down in the clouds, and he calls all the dead out of the grave. Everybody agrees Jesus is coming, right? Everybody agrees that the dead in Christ will rise. That's what we looked at last time. The difficulty is, is there any space between chapter 4 and chapter 5? There is. And you'll see it here as we go through the pronouns in just a minute. When Jesus comes back to planet Earth, not in the sky, not in the air as we saw last time, he's going to land on the Mount of Olives. That's what the angel said. He's going to come back the way he came. You can find it in Zechariah and Zephaniah. Then when he touches down on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two. And a river flows out that heals the land, that heals the Dead Sea, it heals the oceans that have gone through all the seven years of tribulation. When Jesus returns, all those things will happen. So, that's separate from meeting Jesus in the air. But you, verse 4, but you, children, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. 
you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. You won't be surprised by it. Thanks for being with us this weekend for Grow in Grace. We're studying 1 Thessalonians with Pastor Ed Ray. It's part of a larger study in the New Testament. If you've joined us late or you just want to hear this again, go online to thepackinghouse.org. We archive our programs there for you so you can listen anytime you'd like. Or you can call and ask for a CD copy at 844-77-GRACE. You know, it takes a team to bring Grow and Grace to you, and we look to our listeners to help make all of this possible. We have an exciting resource to tell you about. It's True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. After serving the Lord as a pastor for many years, Francis began to wonder if Christianity really made a difference in people's lives. True spirituality, you could say, is the result of his effort to re-examine his faith. And if you want to discover what true spirituality looks like in everyday life, this is the book for you. We'll send you a copy when you support Grow in Grace today with a gift of any amount. And as you give, you'll be helping many others around the country and around the world to grow in grace as well. Just give us a call, 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. This program is brought to you by the Packing House Christian Fellowship in Redlands, California. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sit be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said let this world know me by your 